It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Welcome back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. A uh, little housekeeping. So you can live stream us on the Internet here. Live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. All across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. All of them. We're really making great progress on those Milky Way ratings. In one of these days, we're going to figure out what the Milky Way is. Meanwhile, during the week, please join us on Fox Business Network, FBN, 4 to 5 p.m. daily. Name the show's Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. And if you can't make it at 4 for some crazy reason, you can just text message your favorite nine-year-old. We'll teach you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. You won't miss Joe Biden mishandling and misplacing his uh, classified documents. You won't miss Janet Yellen, who now is uh, telling us that the uh, the debt ceiling, the debt limitation is upon us. We don't do something immediately. America is going to default. No, we won't. But they're interesting points, and we're going to talk about them. And it's where politics and the economy intersect. And I think it's good, by the way. A lot of good things happening here. Stock markets rallying. Inflation is down, still too much inflation, Biden inflation. Biden inflation is still too high, but it is down. The Federal Reserve has done its job. Heck, even Jay Powell in Stockholm, Switzerland, said we're not going to be intimidated, no political intimidation by the likes of Elizabeth Warren and other far-left uh, socialists. We're not in the business of climate change. We are in the business of price stability. I think it's his finest moment. Just want to say that. We'll talk about it later. we got John Carney and uh, Tomas Phillips and uh, former prosecutor and Fox uh, contributor, National Review's uh, Andy McCarthy beyond at the half hour. Talk about this crazy, um, this crazy Biden stuff. By the way, it's interesting. Um, Andy McCarthy's uh, column in the New York Post yesterday Basically, Biden's admitted guilt, and he's admitted it. I mean, they have said it was, quote-unquote, inadvertently misplaced. I'm not sure what that means, inadvertently misplaced. But they have acknowledged that. There's no challenge to it. The locations were not authorized, and he uh, failed to keep track of it. But I want to tell you one thing about this. Look, at I, you know, I worked in the White House. Uh, I was an assistant to the president for three years, uh, director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. Uh, also served on the uh, National Security Council, uh, the Committee uh, on Foreign Investments. If he has all the high-level committees, I had the top-level clearance and so forth and so on. Um, you just don't walk out – if you're not the president, the president's different. I'll get to that in a minute. But if you're the vice president on down and you're out of office, you retire, you're, you know, you lose the election, whatever the reason, you may have a top level security clearance. We all still have the top level security clearance, but you can't just walk out with bundles of classified information under your arms or in a big sack, 
You can't do that. You can walk out with stuff, and it has to immediately go to the National Archives. Okay, that's a piece that is not being discussed sufficiently. It doesn't go to your house in Wilmington, Delaware. It doesn't go to your beach house in Rehoboth. It doesn't go to office buildings for your phony Penn Biden think tank. It goes to the National Archives. And if it doesn't go to the National Archives, you got a problem. You are violating the law. Right there. Right there. Now, on the Fox Business Show, I had former Vice President Mike Pence was on when this uh, third batch and special counsel story broke. So that was Thursday, right? Yeah, Thursday. Time flies when you're having fun. And, you know, I asked Mike Pence about it. He's a very dear friend. And um, I said, did you do that? No. You didn't walk out with, with documents. And Pence wrote a book. Pence wrote a very good book, by the way. Pence's book's better than Biden's book by a long shot. But putting all that aside, Pence's basic message was, you're not allowed to do it. If you do do it, it's got to go to the National Archives. But the trick is, don't do it. And you can't just take it home. Now, while you're in office, the president and the vice president and a few other people, like the National Security Advisor, Secretary of State, uh, you could take stuff home if you had a skiff, which is one of these, um, you know, airtight, uh, secret protection encrypted places called a skiff. And that's what Pence would do. I mean, Pence had a safe, he had a military aid, and I'm sure Biden had all the same stuff. That's okay. Sensitive compartmented information facility, SCIF, skiff. Okay. But that's why you're in office. When you leave office, you lose your skiff. It's not maintained. You also lose your, you know, your encrypted computer accounts. I had all these government uh, computer accounts, uh, which would let me read classified material and um, or even stamp if there was an economic document I wanted it to be classified. I never did because the government has too many secrets anyway. But all the things Biden did were wrong. He was just wrong. You can't do that. It goes into the archives. Now, uh, if uh, Biden wants to write a book, as he did after his uh, eight years with Obama, that's fine. But he has to go to the National Archives where they have a skiff. And then he can read classified documents to his heart's delight because I presume he still had his security clearance in those days. I presume that. Can't do it at some office building in Washington because you don't have any skiff, no protection, no protected area. You can't do it at your home in Wilmington and or Rehoboth. They haven't found anything in Rehoboth yet. But you can't do what he did. So when he says, when he says um, inadvertently misplaced, I don't understand what that means. It was inadvertently misplaced from the day he left the office and took some of these documents home with him. 
And you would have known that. So we got to figure this out. There's so many other questions involved. Who are these personal lawyers that discovered this? Or who are these White House lawyers? I mean, what were they doing in his garage at the at the place in Wilmington, Delaware, with the Corvette? What are they doing there? Were they, like, cleaning up? Uh, you know, were they these, like, young White House lawyers? The first batch were not White House lawyers. The second batch were from the White House counsel, I think. But... Were they replacing the cleaning lady? Were they, like, mopping the garage floors, polishing the Corvette? What were they doing there? Or were they looking for stuff? And what kind of stuff? Well, I'm sure they were looking for classified documents. And they found some in the garage. You could see that great picture of the Corvette behind the Corvette, all those documents piled up in a corner, I mean, completely out in the open. They found one in another room in the house. That was the third batch, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a week from today, there may be 200 of them. Who knows? I just don't know who these people were. What kind of security clearance did they have? James Comer is asking that question, head of the, uh, you know, the new Republican House Investigations Committee. Should ask that question. Who were these people? And why were they? Why was it? Where's the FBI? Where's the FBI? Remember how the FBI, all of a sudden, at 5 o'clock one morning or something, smashed into Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago, Florida? Huh? Looking for documents that were under lock and key that they had already agreed to? Well, how come they weren't smashing into the house in Wilmington? Why were White House counsel office lawyers looking and rummaging around the garage and the other parts of the house. Why weren't the FBI doing that? Huh? Where were they? Well, this is unequal treatment. This is a double standard. Not good. Not good, Joe Biden. You're in trouble here. You got yourself wiggled into a bunch of lies and false processes. Now, look, Merrick Garland, you know, I don't think he had any choice to have, but to have a special counsel. That's fine. Trump has one. Biden has one. Hillary. Hillary got three. How did she get a pass on this? Remember her? What, 3,000 emails? Remember that? She tried to clean them out, leech them. I mean, I don't. You know, look, I, I guess I'm a partisan. I'm a Trump guy. I don't, I mean, I certainly agree with Mr. Trump on policy. I don't agree with him on some other things. I don't deny the election. You could say that Cutlow's a Trump guy. But I'm just right now looking at facts. These are facts. And there's a lot of unanswered questions that have to be answered. Now, I'm going to make a judgment here, kids. I'm going to make a political judgment. You could agree with me or disagree with me. But this whole episode of misplaced documents, wrongly placed documents, special counsel, etc., is a political wrecking ball for Joe Biden. And it is a political wrecking ball for the Democratic Party. Because, among other things, 
Mr. Biden has spent a lot of time in the last six months with what I would call self-righteous indignation, blasting, criticizing Donald Trump, demeaning, attacking, you name it. In fact, when Biden went before 60 Minutes on CBS, I don't remember who interviewed him, Scott Pelley, I don't remember. Scott Pelley's a fine reporter. I'm not casting aspersions on him, just say I remember who interviewed him. But my point is, when he did that, he was when Biden had that 60 Minutes interview before the election, guess what? He already knew that documents had been found at this University of Pennsylvania think tank baloney center. By the way, a think tank that's apparently funded by Chinese. Wouldn't have anything to do with the Chinese Communist Party, would it? Wouldn't have anything to do with Hunter Biden's Chinese investment company, would it? But putting all that aside, Biden already knew, but he chose to pile on Trump like he always does. Essentially lying through his teeth. Can't do that anymore. That's over. Because he's in the same boat as Trump. We could talk about that boat. We could talk about what the punishment for that boat should be. But he knew. Now he can't do that. And neither can the Democratic Party. And it's going to really hurt them. The Democratic Senate will be hurt by this. Republicans will hold investigations. And by the way, it may be a stretch, but... Maybe I'll take a break here. On the other side, I mean, I want to talk about how this improves the outlook for Kevin McCarthy's House Republicans, how it's likely they will get a tough budget through, debt ceiling or not. We're going to cut spending, no more tax hikes, no more crazy regulatory increases, hopefully. So the one leads to the other. Political weakness from this whole episode of the special counsel and the documents, the classified documents, spills over into a lot of areas, one of which is going to be the budget, which in a few months, not right now, but in a few months is going to be a very big deal. Janet Yellen is already talking about the debt ceiling, the debt limit. Last point. I just want to make one quick point. There is a big difference, however, between Biden's classified documents controversy and Donald Trump's. Here's the difference. Presidents, while in office, can take documents home and declassify them. They can. That's a law. That's constitutional. Vice presidents cannot. So my point is the minute Joe Biden walked out of the White House, In 2017, it would have been early 2017. Let's call it inauguration day. The minute he walks out with classified documents under his arms, he is already violating the law. And he knew it. He knew it. When Trump brings boxes of classified documents as a retiring president, he is within the law because the law allows him to declassify. And only the president can do that. And by the way, he was discussing stuff at the archives. I'll go through that later in the show. But it is going to have an economic impact 
a fiscal impact as well as a political and legal impact. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. By the way, Andy McCarthy, great Andy McCarthy, will be here at the half hour, and we'll talk through a lot of this stuff. Stick around, folks. Lots more to do. Happy Saturday. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, still talking about this, um, I got a former prosecutor, National Review, uh, Fox News contributor, Andy McCarthy, coming on at the half hour. Uh, talk much more about this, but look at, I'm just, I'm, I'm connecting some dots here this morning. My point is, and I, I may be right, I may not be right, but my point is the, um, the scandal around these classified documents, a scandal which I think is going to deepen and worsen because they're going to discover more stuff, but whatever. Uh, that, and the special counsel is going to do great political damage to Biden, who can no longer blast Trump for the whole Mar-a-Lago documents business, which, by the way, uh, I believe Trump committed. I mean, maybe it was frazzled and disorganized, but they had it on Trump stuff, 300 documents under lock and key supervised by the authorities working with the National Archives. Completely different story, not in a Corvette, not, not hanging around a garage was under lock and key in box. They knew this. And um, the FBI didn't have to ruffle through Mrs. Trump's wardrobe. Are they going through Mrs. Biden's wardrobe? I haven't heard that yet. Oh, by the way, the FBI, well, where are they? But putting even all that aside for a second, the political damage to Biden is going to be substantial. And my point is, since we're interested in economic policy, growing the economy, it will help the new Republican House Biden's political weakness, and it's going to be substantial, and it's going to rub off on the Democrats in the Senate. They will not; they will lose all this high horse, self righteous indignation nonsense that they've been practicing all during the election year. And uh, the chances of a good budget, which I'm really interested in, right? We want to cut inflation by lowering federal spending. We want to limit the federal government's role in the economy and in our lives. We believe in free market capitalism, not big government socialism. The chances of limiting all this big government socialism, Green New Deal, raise taxes, so forth and so on, improve. Kevin McCarthy and his group can get a good budget, meaning a lower budget, with an open process called regular budget order and end the idea of 4,000-page omnibus bill, $2 trillion, dead of the night, no one knows what's in it, documents. The one leads to the other. The Wilmington garage and Corvette leads to a better budget. How's that? Lower inflation, more economic growth. Stock market may already be reflecting this. We may have a stock market rally. Anyway, stick around. I'm Kudlow. Andy McCarthy after the break. We'll cover all this and much more. It's really kind of great fun here. Please stay with us. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we welcome to the show our dear friend, Andy McCarthy. Andrew McCarthy is a former prosecutor. He's a editor, 
columnist for National Review, Fox News contributor, all these things that are great. He's a very busy chap. Uh, Andrew, uh, thank you. I know you were just on Neil Cavuto. I, I saw a picture of you, but I couldn't hear it, so I don't know what you told Neil. And I want to know. Oh well. I want to know everything. <laughs> well, but it basically, Larry, it, it, you're very kind to say all this, but if I'm having my 15 minutes, that means it's a problem for the country. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Do you realize that you and I conducted our own interview on another show, Sandra Smith's show, the other day? <laughs> they great. just get out of the way, though. That was fun. Ah, it was great fun. <laughs> Um, so I'm looking at your New York Post article from yesterday, your your column in the Post, and that you're saying Biden has already admitted guilt. Yep. He, he's just betting Garland doesn't prosecute him uh, or Trump. Um, so basically, right, you're saying we've already witnessed a guilty plea. They've said these documents, classified documents, inadvertently misplaced. I'm still not sure what that means. But um, – if you could expand on the already admitted guilt, how you see that? Well, in most crimes, you have to prove that the person um, willfully violated the criminal law. So, you know, the easy case is a, a bank robbery. Nobody robs a bank by mistake or by sloppiness. You know, it's a plan. You willfully do it. Classified information handling is different because government officials who get access to classified information um, basically have to pledge that they're going to keep it in the correct and secure manner. That's a condition of getting access to it. So unlike most criminal statutes, the standard with classified information is you can be guilty if the prosecution can prove that you were grossly negligent in handling it. Mm. Now, they always obscure this, like with Hillary Clinton, this is the famous example. They said, you know, there's no evidence that she was trying to harm the United States or selling us out to another country. Or any. And they say that because people figure that that's usually the, the kind of thing you have to prove in the criminal law. But you don't have to prove it with respect to classified documents. The issue is, was the person cavalier, you know, completely reckless uh, in handling Information And the reason for that is not only because they're they're trusted with access to this information, that it's privilege. Uh, you know, the rest of us don't get to get to see it, but also because if it falls into the wrong hands, it can be catastrophic for the country. If the stuff really is top secret information that can reveal methods and sources of intelligence. So that's why it's handled that way. And when you say, you know, I inadvertently misplaced it, that's tantamount to saying that you were grossly negligent with mm. it. So. I think at this point, Larry, he's really not going to contest. If, if they're going to stick with this story, I think he's not contesting the underlying facts of the case. And he's banking on the idea that uh, Garland probably won't prosecute him because Hillary didn't get prosecuted. And his offense, while bad, is not as bad as hers. Well, if all that's true, then I can think of somebody else who shouldn't be prosecuted either. Yeah, well, you know, I totally agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, this, the parlor game this week has been to compare Trump and Biden. And I, I just think a lot of that is, um, you know, I mean, you could bat that back and forth all day long, right? To me, um, you know, having done this sort of thing for a long time, the context of this is more important. And the, the context here 
for evaluating both these cases is they let Clinton get away with a egregious violation. So that's the that's the field of play we're on. Hmm. And if you were the Justice Department working on a Trump case before the Biden thing erupted, what you I think would be saying as a prosecutor is we have a very small margin for error if we're going to be able to show people or claim to people that Trump is uniquely awful in a way that justifies prosecuting him even though Hillary got a pass. Mm. Now, I I think that's really uphill no matter what. But one thing's for sure, and and that is they couldn't afford for anything to go wrong if you're going to try to make that case. Mm. And then to have it develop that the sitting president of the United States committed the same crime that you're investigating Trump for, I, I just don't think they can sustain that kind of damage and have a case. Maybe even worse, because after all, presidents can declassify. Vice presidents cannot. I mean, let, right. let me go back a step. So, you know, I was talking to, let's see, Thursday night you came on our show and uh, on the TV show at Fox Business. And then after you, we had Mike Pence, who went right. through a similar, you know, Pence uh, retired from the vice presidency. Now, Vice President Andrew McCarthy, uh, you, you can't walk out of the office with sackfuls of classified documents and then like go to your beach house or your Wilmington house or your downtown Washington, D.C. think tank. You can't do that. The document, even though he has security clearance, the documents are supposed to legally go to the National Archives. That's where they're supposed to go. And then if he wants to read them there in a skiff or something, fine. But he didn't, apparently he didn't do that, or at least... And so far as however many, I don't even know how many documents they've uncovered, but that's that's my point. Your first stop, if you want to write a book or something, your first stop has got to be the National Archives, not your house or your office. <laughs> I mean, that's a yeah, very no, simple thing to understand. That's exactly right. And I I, I watched your uh, interview with, uh, with Vice President Pence, and I thought, you know, he, he what he said, as I understood it, was, you know, look, I had access and I had a clearance and I could do all these things. But it, for my purposes, it was perfectly fine to have his military aide show up, that he would review the uh, documents under safe circumstances. And then they use the burn bag and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, be done with it. And, you know, if you don't if you don't need to do more than that and he could do his job, uh, obviously, you know, with that level of care and information, fine. But for others who have like I had a security clearance during the, you know, prosecuting uh, national security cases in the 90s, uh, the fact that I had a clearance didn't mean I could leave the secure, the skiff um, with the documents. I had to, I had to, I could only review them in a place where they were allowed to be reviewed. So having a, having a security clearance is only half the uh, equation. That gives you the, you know, privileged access to the documents, but you still have to uh, review them under lawful circumstances, and obviously Biden didn't do that here. I mean, Pence was very clear in that sense. <laughs> Pence's basic message was, um, uh, I didn't do this, and he shouldn't have either. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in some sense, you know, Mike Pence is a very homey way of saying things from Indiana. But look, Andrew, I had a, you know, high, I had a high security clearance, but I couldn't take anything home. I don't even mean after I left office, during. 
Now, some people yeah. can, like if they, like Robert O'Brien or somebody or a national security advisor might have a skiff built at home. Right. You know, one of these uh, security uh, protected rooms. Uh, I didn't. I, did, I mean, I was asked. I cho- No, I don't want to do that. I wasn't allowed to bring anything uh, home. Had to go in the safe at night. Right. That's the deal. Well, you know, look, that's, I, I think, you know, I, those of us who have had to deal with this stuff, um, it's kind of the ball and chain of government. I hated yeah. having to deal with it because yeah. if you're going to do it by the book, um, it's very inconvenient. You know, when I was doing, um, even if I had a mafia case, Larry, where I'd have, you know, reports that I wanted to review, mm-hmm. where if if they fell into the wrong hands, if I misplaced them, you know, an informant could be found out and that could be dangerous. It was I could still bring stuff home, even if it was, uh, you know, midnight and I had to be back to the office early in the morning and sit there and read for a couple of hours if I needed to before I went back. You can't do that with classified information. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, respect the rules for how you well, you're supposed to respect the rules for uh, for how you handle it. But, you know, again, I think we, we see this again and again and again. These uh, famous guys who are more often than not Democrats think that either the rules don't apply to them or they have a special set of rules. That's and, you know, Clinton, the Clintons lived their whole career um, in a way, in an entitled way, which suggested that, you know, there was a separate set of rules for them and for everyone else. And I think what, what Biden did here was he probably needed those documents, whether it was to write his memoir or whatever he was doing. Uh, and he didn't follow the rules because he didn't think the rules applied to him. He's been in government for 50 years mm-hmm. and, you know, he's living in a cocoon where the rules don't apply to him. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly right. A um, couple other points here, Andrew. I think we talked about this when you came on our show Thursday night, but I, I'm still waiting for the FBI, and I'm still waiting for them to inspect a crime scene, as you described it. And I don't understand what these – I think, if I have this right, personal lawyers were uh, cleaning up this Penn-Biden center because he was going into back to the White House to become president. Uh, but White House counsel lawyers uh, were cleaning the garage and the Corvette. Why they were there, I don't know. Maybe they were because um, the cleaning ladies came late that day. I mean, I don't, even, I don't, I don't understand any of that. But I, I mean, who are these lawyers? I mean, they're White House well, counsel lawyers. Um, some of them, you know, I know all about that. Look, um, all that's on the second floor of the West Wing where my offices were. Some of them have good security. Some of them have high security clearances. Some of them have lower security clearances. You know, uh, Andy McCarthy, I don't, I don't understand any of this. Why isn't the FBI doing all this? And what? Last question. I know I'm running on with questions. What are they looking for? What are they looking for? All of a sudden. Well, I suspect what happened, Larry, is they found unexpectedly this batch of classified documents in the in the. Biden or the Penn Biden Center, that uh, Chinese funded think tank that he's got in Washington. And that probably caused a hot panic. They had to notify the archives of that and apparently surrendered the documents. And then I assume what happened in the way of damage control was, you know, they got together at the White House and they figured, you know, gee, we better go through all of his stuff uh, and and make sure there's no other uh, 
documents. What, what's very strange to me, aside from the fact that uh, you would think that the FBI should have been involved coordinating that and treating these locations like uh, crime scenes, but but I, I just don't uh, understand how we know about this in the first place. And secondly, if you're going to take the political hit for delaying telling everybody what happened, I mean, they waited over two months, then why don't you make sure you've had, you know, you've, you've tracked down every single potential document so you only have to take this hit once. Instead, they waited over two months and then they announce it on a Monday or we find out about it on a Monday. And the next thing we know on Tuesday and Wednesday, we're hearing about more locations and more mm-hmm. documents. So it just sounds to me like this is being handled in a really ham-handed way. And you would think that the FBI should have been involved in it from November 2nd. So what they've been doing for the last two months, God knows. And Andy, not only since November 2nd, pre-election, and I don't mean to be vindictive here. I'm looking at legal process here. Right. If, if you're worried all of a sudden that uh, classified documents are scattered hither and yon, including your uh, garage, why isn't the FBI going through all of his areas? Yes, Rehoboth, exactly right. Rehoboth, uh, the bedrooms of all these houses, the beach house. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that's what they did to Trump. Um, and again, I, I don't mean to be vindictive, but if you're going to scrub it, scrub it. Why did they well, just I, go I, to the garage? Yeah, that just seems like common sense to me, Larry. I mean, you know, you don't know anyone. Um, you know, people are either careful or they're not, right? You don't uh, you don't run into people who are careful on Monday and Wednesday, but the rest of the week, you know, you better watch out for them. Right. And you don't run into people who are careful in particular places, but not everywhere. So, you know, the chances are if he if he handled these kind of materials in the office that way. You know, somebody wise in his circle should have been able to say, you know, look, we have to scrub every place and we mm-hmm. shouldn't say that, you know, it, uh, remember when Trump's search happened, Merrick Garland gave a press conference the same week. Mm-hmm. He got a lot of criticism for it, and rightly so. Um, they didn't say anything. So they had the advantage of they have their own government in place. Uh, the attorney general wasn't going to, you know, rat out the president or, you know, hurt the Democrats right on the eve of the election. That's just politics. It's just the way it is. But if you have that advantage, why don't you take the two months and do a thorough investigation so that when you finally fess up, you only have to do it once? I just don't understand what they're doing. That's a great point, actually. Andy Andy McCarthy, hang with me. i got to take a quick commercial break and then come right back and we'll finish this off. You're an absolute (laughs) prince for doing this. Folks, we're talking to the great Andrew McCarthy former prosecutor here in New York, National Review, uh, Fox News contributor, great friend of ours. We'll be right back. I'm Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to the great Andrew McCarthy, former prosecutor, National Review uh, contributor, columnist, and Fox News contributor, and one hell of a good lawyer. Uh, Angie, I want to ask you just the last piece of this. Um, James Comer who's going to be the new oversight chairman uh, of the House Republicans, as you may know. He uh, wants a list of names and locations linked to the Biden document searches um, because he's going to hold hearings. But I guess my question to you is, if you have a special counsel, will that close down any other 
investigation. They'll just say we can't tell you anything because because um, we have this special counsel investigation. Will that stop everything else? Yeah, well, that's part of why they do it, Larry. I think that they're going to try that. But, you know, what I would say if I were uh, Chairman Comer is we just watched the nine, the January 6th committee uh, conduct its investigation um, and issue subpoenas. And it didn't matter to them that there were 900 people who were being prosecuted for the Capitol riot. They had their primetime hearing in the middle of Steve Bannon's Mm. criminal trial they didn't they didn't care that that could prejudice the outcome of a case so i wouldn't i wouldn't be very tolerant of the justice department saying that now because there's an investigation on congress can't Mm. investigate because you know they allowed the january 6th committee carte blanche and you know the way it's supposed to work in this system our constitutional system is the main check on executive misconduct is supposed to be Congress. It's not supposed to be prosecutors who work for the president mm-hmm. in the executive branch. Oh, so right. they should just use subpoenas. I mean, their subpoenas are actionable. And, you know, the Democrats are going to scream bloody murder and say, oh, you're interfering with the criminal investigation. But I wouldn't I wouldn't tolerate that after what we just saw for the last two years. Mm. That's a good point. So they can use subpoenas. Yeah. They are the ones who were supposed. They are the ones constitutionally who have the main responsibility to to check executive branch access. Good point. So where's this lead? I mean, is it like, um, you know, two guys playing tennis? We're in the fifth set and we have a tiebreaker that goes on for six hours and we finally call it a draw. Trump versus (laughs) Biden on classified documents. Yeah. Where's this? How does this work? I think it's not that exciting. I think what happens is in the middle of the fifth set, the lights go out and, you know, (laughs) nobody wants to play anymore. I know. Um, You know, so I think I don't see I don't see that they're ever going to charge Biden for this. And what they'll rationalize is that, you know, this isn't nearly as serious as what Hillary did. But the fact is, if they don't prosecute Biden, I don't see how they prosecute Trump because Biden wants to get reelected in 2024. And I I don't think he should get reelected, but he's got to know that the country's on fire with this idea that there's two tiers of justice in this, in this country, depending on, you know, what your partisan affiliation is. So they can't prosecute Trump after giving Biden a pass. I mean, that's, that's crazy. I mean, already it appears, again, I go back to the question, where's the FBI? It appears that the handling of the Trump case was a lot more harsh and severe and intrusive than the handling of the Biden case so far, so right. far. Uh, and as we were talking before the break, um, you know, well, what were they doing in the garage? Why, why, why weren't they in either other parts of the house or different houses or whatever? Um, already it seems unfair. And I think people are taking notice of that. Yeah, and it, and it feeds on an impression that people already have, which isn't just an impression, it's reality. You know, they look at the... The Hillary Clinton emails investigation, she got cut every break under the sun, mm-hmm. whereas the Russiagate investigation, they went after these guys, Hammer and Tom. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the, you know, the Capitol riot. I'm not I'm not here to make an apology for rioters, but, you know, that was a five hour riot where, contrary to what they're saying, no law enforcement people actually got killed. Mm. Uh, and in the meantime, we had five months of rioting or more after the, the George Floyd incident 
and mm. everybody got a pass. Mm. You know, there was no uh, appetite to investigate that a tenth of the way that they investigated the Capitol riot. So I think, you know, people see this stuff, Larry, and they just it really it's it's a compromise of the legitimacy mm. of the justice system and if you don't have rule of law we can't have a you know we can't have an economically flourishing society we can't have anything well i agree totally with that i think uh we're running out of time and i got to let you enjoy your weekend i think this does a lot of political damage to biden you know the self-righteous indignation attacks against trump he can't really that's gone that's yep. gone. And uh, so the politics change here. You mentioned the economy. Uh, my opening, and I said this last night on our TV show, this helps Kevin McCarthy's House Republicans get a good budget through because it weakens Joe Biden quite a bit. Anyway, Andrew McCarthy, you are a prince. You are the best of the best. Thanks for giving us your time here on a Saturday. Folks, I'm Cudlow, and uh, we're going to take a commercial break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk some more about the economy. We've got to talk about the economy. It's a very mixed bag. You know what I mean? Don't give up hope, America. Maybe things are changing for the better. I'm Cudlow. We'll be back after this message. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. It'll run all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And please don't forget to join us, Fox Business Network, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. The name of the show is Kudlow. And if you can't get there at 4 for some reason... Just send a text message to your favorite nine-year-old. We'll show you how to DVR the show. You won't miss a single thing. Anyway, we're going to bring in Dr. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., former CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Kevin, welcome. Glad to you're giving us some time on a weekend. Well, Larry, it's a, a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for everything you're doing. Obviously, there's a lot going on here in the imperial city of D.C., and heritage like you is is aiming to repair some of that. So thanks for having me. So let's talk about um, the Republican Congress. And let's talk about, let me start with the budget. Um, let me, t we're going to have regular budget order for the first time in a while. And they're going to cut spending. In fact, they want to go back to the 2022 uh, baseline, last year's baseline. I want to knock out $230 billion right off the top. We're going to have an open process. We're going to have 12 appropriation bills. Uh, no more big 4,000-page omnibus bills. But the trick is lower, not higher spending, and lower, not higher inflation, and lower, not higher taxes. What do you make of it? What handicapped the chances? How do you see this story? Well, I'll handicap them and say, and I know you agree with this because you and I have, have collaborated along with many others to, to help get to this point, that this is the great fruit of the the hassle last week. And, and you know, Heritage was very supportive of Scott Perry and Chip Roy, nothing personal with our mutual friend, Speaker McCarthy, which he knows, but he's a better speaker. We've got a better chamber that can actually get us back to regular budget order. But we know, to your point about handicapping, that 
that's a slim majority. And so I think, and you know, I'm an optimist, Larry, there's a 60, 70% chance that we'll get most of that. And, it, and it's for this reason. That House Republican conference, in spite of all of the different factions and fragmentation, is very aware that the American people want to see fiscal restraint. That's point number one. Point number two is, while I disagree with Joe Biden on everything, I do think that he and enough people in his administration are savvy enough politically to know that this can be a political win for him. If, in fact, he's running for reelection and all signs point that way, then he's got to do so with lower inflation and with the budget not running crazy. And so I, I think the political signs point there. But I will sum up with this. The Republicans and the conservative groups outside elected office have to be willing to fight because the Democrats are going to fight this tooth and nail. And unfortunately, there might even be some Republicans who do the same. I mean, Biden may be a wounded warrior. It's very interesting to me. You know, this story breaks uh, about mishandling classified documents. He's in trouble on that. And I, I, I don't know whether the story goes deeper. I think it's, it is going to go deeper, but I don't know that. But right off the top, he's wounded. I mean, all the attacks he's made on Trump, you know, for doing for classified documents and then, you know, law and order and breaking down democracy and all these things. <laughs> well, Biden did a little democracy breaking himself. I mean, you can't walk out of the White House uh, with, a you know, arms full of classified documents and, and either go to your think tank in Washington or your home in Delaware. You've got to go straight to the National Archives. He kind of forgot that. So he's got a problem here, and I think that helps Kevin McCarthy and company a lot. And I think if they want to go toe-to-toe with Biden, uh, he may have to play ball with them in ways that he never dreamed possible and the ways that he wants that he will hate because they're going to knock out a lot of the stuff he put in in that um, crazy omnibus bill. I think you're 100% correct, and, and you know, what, a, what a surprise that – the, the, just speaking politically, not that I agree with any of the substance, the, the president had a really good few months, just politically speaking. And it was looking like very much to my surprise and yours, I'm sure that he was surprisingly reelectable. I still think a conservative is going to beat him. Having said that, the last week has changed all of that. And so if you and I happen to be on the other side politically and we're advising President Biden on what to do, We put pressure on him to go deal because he's got to find this is your point. I'm sure he's got to find some issue on which he can go out and message. And it's got to be a strong majority position. You know, from all the polling you look at and and, and we look at at Heritage, that the American people understand across the political spectrum, but especially in the center and on the right, that this spending simply is impossible to continue. And they'd feel that every day, most importantly, because of inflation. So I agree with you. I think that This documents issue is not only going to go deeper, it's going to be problematic for the president. I wonder out loud if it's an inside job. I don't know that, but I wonder. Mm. And I also know, most importantly, for the lane that you and I want to be focused on, which is fiscal policy, it's a big gift for Speaker McCarthy, and he's a good enough politician and tactician to take advantage of it. That's been my my thinking in the last 48 hours as this story really broke big. I think that's exactly right. Let me ask you to go on to some other policy issues. I was talking to Steve Scalise on the uh, on the Cudlow show, and um, I want them to go after oil and gas. I want them to go uh, not just the strategic petroleum reserve, the 
pass some kind of resolution or legislation on that. But we never got the permitting bill. You know, Joe Manchin was double-crossed. Joe Manchin double-crossed conservatives, and he got double-crossed by the Biden-Schumer liberals and so forth. But the House Republicans got to go after this. It shouldn't be an afterthought. It shouldn't be a second or third thought. Because, as you know, look, refined petroleum products affect, permeate every aspect of American life. The clothes we wear, the glasses we wear, the emergency room we go to, uh, food, you name it. And, you know, here they are talking about ending gas gas, uh, stoves or gas-powered cars. I mean, the GOP has got to make a strong permitting bill for permitting, fracking, refining, uh, LNG uh, installations. You you follow? I, I don't want the grass to grow. I want them to go after that right away. They need to do that next week. In fact, they, they ought to use this ridiculous plan to eliminate gas stoves, which you know, this amateur chef loves, by the way, <laughs> as, 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 as the leverage to push for that permitting bill. And, and I, I think the next thing is really key, Larry, and that is we, we can't just as a conservative movement say this is important. We've got to make the point that you made because the left has done a really good job of demonizing oil and gas so much so that. A majority of Americans, a slim majority of Americans, thankfully, just that, don't understand that oil and gas, fossil fuels permeate everything we do. Good things in our lives, like what you mentioned, from emergency room materials to, as my wife would remind me, makeup. So it, it, it's, it's crucial for us to draw that link to the everyday American. I, over the last couple of weeks, have been really encouraged by the willingness of some House Republicans to focus on substance not focus on personality for the sake of the everyday American. And I think along with the budget issues we were talking about, this issue of reliable, affordable energy and all of the prosperity it creates is a winner for us this year. Polyester. Polyester. (laughs) You got it. No, I mean, look, um, it's inexpensive clothing. It's very important for middle income, lower middle income, lower income people. It's just one example of where refined petroleum products affect their daily lives, stethoscopes. I mean, there's just no end to it. I had a list of 150 things we got from the energy department a few months ago. It's really quite remarkable, all the things that go into it. And um, you're right, this uh, gas-powered stove. How much do you cook, by the way, on the gas-powered stove? Most of us here in New York don't do any cooking. We just use DoorDash. Well, you know, I cook all the time. And so when I'm, I'm home on the weekends, my wife and four kids expect me to do that. And, and it's, it's sort of my creative release. I can't sing. I don't play an instrument, at least not well. I'm not good in art. And so it's where I just kind of get rid of stress. And my, my family and friends tell me that the fruit of that usually is very good. So every weekend I do, multiple times. <laughs> all right. other one I want to ask you about is tax policy. Um, you know, they're talking about a pro-growth budget, which is great. And they're talking about a pro-growth balanced budget, which is great. And I've worked with Russ Vogt, my cabinet colleague in the Trump years, and others, Steve Moore and others. Um, But I haven't heard enough yet. I want the Trump tax cuts to be made permanent, Kevin Roberts. I think that they, they may not get it, but they should talk about it because they were very successful. Completely. And and I felt that you felt that everyday Americans felt it. And, and we do need to hear more about that. I can tell you that our budget folks here at Heritage, Richard Stern, Matt Dickerson, others who 
work with with Russ Vode and, and you and others need to be continuing to beat that drum. And I'm I'm encouraged by a couple of meetings ahead on the Hill this week, Larry, with some members of the House who recognize the need to do that. And so for those of us who work on the outside, even though as I stand here in my office, I'm looking at the Capitol, it's incumbent that we be beating that drum, that these be made permanent. And, and sort of like the point I made about the messaging on oil and gas, we have to be really laser focused as a conservative movement in the media that the reason we want to make these tax cuts permanent is because they are the antidote to the fiscal nonsense of the Biden years. Mm. And if we can deliver that message, I think that not only will it be good for policy, but in 2024, it'll be good for political results, too. Is uh, Jason Smith the new Ways and Means chair? Uh, is he a spy cider? He is. In That's fact, him. I've gotten to know, know Jason in my first year here at Heritage. He's he's one of my favorites and was was uh, texting with him last week. Mm. He's got some really bold plans. I think you in particular are going to be really pleased. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a good man. Uh, I mean, I basically like the new lineup. And I also agree with you that the the conservatives, the Freedom Caucus conservatives have made the um, so-called commitment to America. They've made it a stronger, sharper document now. With their reform, I think the whole story, you know, the whole story turned out pretty darn well. It did. The commitment to America was was well intentioned, as 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 I've told people, it is at once everything and nothing. Mm. Meaning there wasn't enough specificity from the policy point of view, but it was everything in the sense of being focused on the right priorities with the right messaging. What the Freedom Caucus guys and a few others have done is is make it everything. And so for for us who have the privilege of, of giving them air cover and giving them intellectual ammunition. We are real excited at Heritage about the prospect for good bills passing the House. And color me an optimist, Larry. Yeah. But I think one or two of those, because of political pressure, if we play the game right, we'll get across the Senate and the president is going to sign. Yeah. I actually think this is going to be a good year for America. Wow. Very good. Very good. Anyway, Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. We appreciate your time very much, Kevin. We will talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about the economy and the CPI and whether we're going to go into a recession or not. We have John Carney of Breitbart and Tomas Phillipson, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So there's a bunch of economic questions. I mean, the whole world is talking about a recession this year. Bankers, you know, Jamie Dimon, the majority of economists, various commentators, there's a recession coming, there's a recession coming. Well, maybe that's true, but maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of a mixed picture. And there's no question that the inflation rate is coming down, which may be contributing to a little better economy than people think. It's not where it needs to be. But I, I want to chew on that. Um, let's bring in some of our experts on this inflation, recession, Fed story. John Carney, Breitbart News Editor uh, for Economics and Finance and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. That's a must-read, by the way, folks. Very good commentary. And my pal and Trump uh, cabinet colleague, Tomas Phillipson, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, now professor of public policy the University of Chicago. Um, I'll start with you, Tomas. 
Everyone says there's going to be a recession. So let, let me just walk through something here. Just hang with me for a minute. A little bit of context. So the first half of last year, the inflation rate surged, got to 9% or so, and the economy slumped to negative GDP quarters. Okay, you, that may have been a recession by itself. I don't know. National Bureau will tell us sometime. But, Tomas, in the second half of last year, the inflation rate came down. Uh, the December numbers weren't bad. And uh, all of a sudden, the three-month CPI is only 1.8% at an annual rate. The core is 3 It ain't perfect. It's not what the Fed wants. There are other issues. The median CPI that John Carney taught me to watch is still 6.9% from the Cleveland Fed. And the core is 4.7. So the inflation battle is not over, but we are disinflating. And here's the thing that makes me I want to address to you. The, the economy grew better than 3% in the third quarter, and the Atlanta Fed GDP now tracker is looking at over 4% for the fourth quarter ending in December, which does not look like a recession to me, Tomas. So I ask you, I you know, everyone's talking about a recession. This is the most widely heralded recession uh, since 1538 A.D., but I don't see it yet. Yeah. So I'm asking you. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, I know. I think a lot of people talked about a Q4 recession as well, if I don't remember uh, wrong, and that didn't come. And some were even talking about a Q3 one. So the deflationary measures that we came out, you know, this week were even better than, I think, the the top-line numbers discussed. Obviously, energy dragged down everything, but the core inflation in the CPI it's just a lagged housing component. You know, housing is 40% of core, and that's highly lagged. So you're picking up a past increase in housing that's currently now deflating. So it's actually more deflationary, much more deflationary than, uh, you know, the numbers came out. And I agree a lot of economists are talking about this, but you know, economists are less important than the consumer. And the consumer came out with a blockbuster confidence report as well this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Being two-thirds of GDP, right? So, that, so consumers are much more optimistic, I think, than economists, which is, I think, important. Because they're driving the economy as opposed to just observing the economy. But it is true in general that people have now anticipated that we should have a recession for a very long, uh, for, for uh, we should be in the middle of one now. And it keeps getting delayed in some sense. And the longer this goes, in my opinion, the more right is, is Milton Friedman, but this is just a money supply issue where we had enormous money supply growth. And then that we had negative money supply growth almost after that. And we see that transitioning with lag into the inflationary component in some sense. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. Now, um, John Carney, uh, on this point, the Michigan Sentiment Index, which came out yesterday, I guess, uh, 64.6 overall, up from 59.7, and November was 56.8. So that's, you know, Tomas is right. That's a big surprise. So, John, what do you make of this recession forecast? This is the most widely heralded recession since the 16th century. 
Well, I've, I've said I, on your show, Larry, I said I didn't think we were – this was after a couple of the strong jobs reports at the end of last year that it was making it very unlikely that we would end up in a recession in the first half of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Tomas was saying, it keeps getting pushed back. When you have – when you're creating over 200,000 jobs every month, it's very hard to have a recession. People's – and as we saw, we, we – you know, falling inflation plus lots of job creation plus falling unemployment did contribute to a, a much better than expected consumer sentiment number. And uh, for the beginning of January, I think it'll improve as January goes on because all of the other numbers that we're seeing also show things are going pretty well. I do want to put in a little context. We're still down on consumer sentiment compared to where we were in January of 2022. And that was a very bad number. So it looks good just because we've been down for so long, it looks up to us. Fellas, stick around. We're going to take a break, and then you're going to come back after the break. It's a hard break. Tomas Philipson and John Carney, I'm Kudlow. There's more on the economy and the most widely heralded recession since the 16th century, which hasn't appeared yet, by the way. I'm Kudlow. Stick around. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking about the economy and the much-heralded recession. As I said, it's the most widely forecasted recession since the late 16th century. It's a joke, by the way. Joke, 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 joke. It's Saturday. We can have jokes. Anyway, we're talking to John Carney of Breitbart, and we're talking to Tomas Philipson of the University of Chicago, formerly chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, by the way, John Carney, that Breitbart Business Digest is terrific. It's a great product. Terrific. Product. Thank you, Larry. Um, so, John, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We had a break. Uh, but um, sentiment has improved. Um, I don't want to overestimate it. You're, you're correct. What's your read on the consumer prices? We've had a lot of disinflation, but the Fed's still got a ways to go. I mean, you've still got, you know, 4%, 5%. Wages are up. Uh, I don't think the Fed – I don't think you think the Fed has stopped its tightening policy. And and Tomas's point about the shrinking money supply is an important point. That's good for inflation, but it's not good for total spending in the economy. It could be a recession indicator. That's right. So I, I think if you look across the various measures of inflation, whether it's core CPI, uh, it's up 5.7% year over year. It's, it's, that kind of 12-month growth rate means there's a lot of distance to go. We are not on a, an anywhere near a trajectory that would get us down to 2% by the end of this year. And I think that so the Fed has a lot more interest rate hikes that it is going to have to implement, not just one or two. And the market right now is doing something that I regard as insane, which is more or less pricing in cuts starting in October, November, and December. Mm. So they think they may get up to 5%, and then they'll start cutting. I don't see that happening because the various underlying inflation measures I look at, but as you said, I love the Cleveland Fed median, and I love their trim mean uh, inflation. Those really suggest that we that there's still a lot of inflation. If you look at services side, even services X shelter, uh, there is still a lot of inflation 
coming through the economy. It's not in goods anymore. We've come out of the goods side of inflation, and we're probably not going to get that again unless we have some sort of uh, energy, a, a renewed energy crisis. But we are going to see services side. Uh, and I do think that the the mild wages we increase we saw in December, I don't think it's going to remain mild given how low unemployment is. Yeah, you know, Tomas, um, the services are still services inflation, which is you know bigger than goods inflation, is still running five, five and a half, six percent. The Fed watches that. A lot of that's labor cost, Tomas, and um, the uh, wage tracker from the Atlanta Fed is six point one percent. I think the Federal Reserve looks at that. So, what's your outlook for the Fed, Tomas? You th- you think they're gonna keep snuggling up by quarters and then keep the rate high? Or do you think the bond market is right and the Fed's going to start cutting rates uh, later this year? It's not only the bond market. I think inflationary expectations is coming down, which is kind of good news as well. I think, uh, you know, the consumer side, inflationary expectations, not what's re- reflected in the in the bond prices. But I think, you know, they're probably going to – I mean, they are – it's still a pretty tight labor market, or pretty very tight labor market. So I think as long as that's the case, they're going to kind of be worried, it seems like, and they're going to trickle in with 25, uh, maybe as long as that is, that is the case. But the interesting thing about the labor market, I think, is the huge productivity swings we've seen the last few years. So economists came in and in the 2021, after COVID, we had a huge spike in productivity, and a lot of economists misread that and say we're going to have another 1990s boom in productivity. And then we had the worst productivity mm. since the World War II period after that. And I think this remote work stuff leads itself to a lot of unproductive workers, and that's why the CEOs are screaming at their workers to come back, essentially, it seems to me. But some of the real wage decline that we've seen, you know, barring the last report where we actually had real wage gains, but we had a lot of, we had a year and a half or whatever, of real wage declines. Part of that might be just reduced productivity because of all this remote work and something. It's not all inflationary, it seems to me. It's not just inflation that's kicking down real wages. It might be that productivity is getting worse and worse with this, all this remote work. And John Carney, if, if productivity is down, unit labor costs are up, and that's very bad for profits. In fact, you know, labor costs labor costs may be rising faster than prices, which is a big negative for profits. Profits are the mother's milk of stock stocks, but also profits are the lifeblood of the economy. It's also going to be a shock to uh, to businesses because. They did very well, and profits were up a lot, in part because real uh, wages have fallen for two consecutive years. Mm-hmm. So we were down in 2021. We were down in 2022, if you look at you know the 12-month uh, difference. And so what, what's happening now, and you can see this, a lot of a, a rising percentage of businesses say that profits are actually right now running below normal levels. This from, comes from the Atlanta Fed's business inflation expectation survey. They say that they're actually less profitable than normal. This is rising. This is going to keep rising. You even saw a hint of the what's happening in the banking reports. Uh, you know, the 
big four banks all reported earnings last week. They have really increased the amount of loan loss reserves they have because they know that there's going to be a loss of profitability. It's going to be harder for businesses to pay off their loans. And so uh, I do think that's why I still think we probably do wind up in a recession because as business profitability stops, they stop expanding. And so sometimes, but I don't think this happens at this point, not to the second half of next year. And if we keep getting the strong labor reports, it's not going to happen until the following year. So, I mean, I was somebody who thought we're going to have a recession, you know, early last year, I thought we were going to have a recession early this year. I, I don't see how you have that at 3.5% unemployment. Tomas, um, that's an interesting point. If you, Tomas, if you were back at the CEA, what advice would you give a president right now in terms of policy? What, w- what would you give, Tomas? Well, I think the energy policy is the main thing that right. is sort of not right. being done in the correct fashion right. in terms of the Biden administration. I mean, he goes out and says, you know, I don't know if you saw that, but he says my economic policies are finally working, <laughs> you know. And, and and we're seeing all this progress despite the administration as opposed to because of the administration. But if you look at – just look at IRA, the inflation reduction, now two-thirds of new spending. Forget, forget all the gimmicks with the things that they did with the inflation rebate rule, et cetera. But two-thirds of new spending is paying people to under – to go into more expensive green energy as opposed to fossil fuels. You're paying people to consume more expensive energy. If green energy was cheaper, the market would go there. We wouldn't need any public policy to have, you know, steer people into green energy. So it's more expensive. We're paying people to use the more expensive energy. And that's a that's not he's claiming that that's a reduction in, in prices for consumers. But someone has to pay the taxes for that, for those subsidies. Mm. So if you take into account, there's no free lunch in consuming more expensive energy. It either has to come from taxes or people's pocketbooks, essentially. So that's a big issue, I think. That's the biggest issue with this administration. They don't understand that there's no free lunch in paying for expensive and more expensive energy. And they're running tax off the tax bill for doing so and claiming that they're lowering energy prices by having subsidies facing the consumer. Yeah, it's just nonsense. By the way, they're breaking trade deals left and right. By the way, these wind, these offshore wind uh, farms are killing whales. You know this story? There's like seven whales have beached up on, the, I think, New York and New Jersey beach shores, dead whales because of these wind farms offshore. They're just killing whales left and right. I'm looking here at Third Avenue. They're, I don't see any whales, but I'm reading about them uh, uh, on the shore, on the beaches. It's a terrible story. You know, they, John Carney. Do you have a Do you have a gas burning stove? You do a lot of cooking, John. I do. I do a lot of cooking. I have a gas burning stove. That. And that related to that, that one of the big subsidies that was in the Inflation Reduction Act, and it goes exactly to what Thomas was saying, is that they're saying uh, they, they'll give you $840 to replace your uh, gas stove with an electric stove. If you put a, a heat pump instead of, you know, an oil burner, I have an oil burner in my house, you replace that with a heat pump, you'll get uh, another $840. So there is all of this spending. And this is, you know, again, this is like, broken 
basic window theory economics, right? right. Like ba- very basic economics. When you replace one stove with another stove, that that work, even if they work exactly as well, nobody got any richer. <laughs> yes, the guy, you know, and in fact, society got poorer because that that money should have gone to, you know, buy something new or better in the world. Instead, all you're doing is swapping out electric for gas stoves. Well, then, but you know, to to Moss's generic point, there's a lot of spending, and. Yes. And even if you do it through the tax code, tax credits are spending through the tax code. I mean, this is stuff that the Republican Congress, uh, you know, when they do their budget, they got to look at. I mean, they got to try to get rid of this stuff because this is going to increase aggregate demand while at the same time it's reducing supply. I mean, it's exactly the reverse. They're feeding demand and they're crunching down supply, which causes Prices to go up. It's inflationary, no matter what the well, Fed the is doing. looked at this. That's what they said, by the way. They looked at this, and they said, yeah, for the first couple of years, it'll be inflationary. But then when we get the deficit reduction stuff, years down the road, it'll be deflationary. But, of course, you know, that's never really going to happen unless we do have a Republican way of election at some point. Because we're, we're, they're not – the Democrats are not going to follow through on the deficit reduction part of this deal. So we'll get all the spending up front. And all the deficit reductions, you know, to the, you know, I'd gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, right? They're they're never going to get around to it. Tomas, have you got any beached whales in Chicago and Lake Michigan? <laughs> Not yet, but who knows? With these policies, it might be showing up soon. Well, I know you got to keep an eye out. Uh, these wind farms—they <laughs> kill birds, they kill whales. They're very expensive, as you pointed out. I mean, if this were cheaper energy, people would use it. Markets would have gone to yeah, exactly. it. But that's, it isn't yeah, cheaper. That's why I think, yeah, I think that's the big misconception here is that, you know, and, you know, he goes out and says we're creating new jobs, green jobs, which is a more inefficient way of using energy, right? So that's, you know, when we have economic growth, we do it by having less people produce more. Mm. When we use more expensive energy, we have more people producing less, uh, right? No. So it's, an act, it's exactly the opposite great of what point. you want to be doing. That, no, no, that's a great point. Very well said. Well, gentlemen, thanks for that. Um, I kind of feel like the recession's not coming until the 17th century. It's not going to make it in the 16th century. John Carney of Breitbart and Tomas Philipson of University of Chicago, I appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to our friend General Jack Keane about the Japan-China talks, uh, Japan-U.S. talks regarding China. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with General Keane. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to turn for a few moments to um, foreign policy and defense policy with our great friend General Jack Keane, retired four-star general. Chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. He's a Fox News senior strategic analyst, and he's also a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Uh, General Keene has recently been appointed to this National Defense Strategy Commission. It's a bipartisan commission. It comes out of the uh, National Defense Strategy. Uh, they're going to review Mr. Biden's National Defense Strategy. It comes out of the NDAA, the fiscal NDAA defense bill. And it is bipartisan. I want to, has, uh, I want to emphasize that. General Keene, sir, of course, actually, Happy New Year. I have not seen you in a while. Yeah, yeah. It's great to hear your voice, Larry. Happy New Year to you, too. And likewise to hear your voice. Um, 
So I don't guess you want to give us a comment yet on Mr. Biden's national defense strategy, because that's what the work of the commission is. Although, feel free if you want to. Uh, but I don't want you to have to prejudge it if you don't want to at this point. Yeah, well, it's a congressional commission, and uh, it is bipartisan, as you uh, as you indicated. It's a small group of folks, about um, eight or nine of us. We'll probably work for about a year and a half. Yeah, I, yeah I'd rather not yeah. until uh, okay. I, I meet with my colleagues and we establish some ground rules. We, we're about to have our first meeting, so uh, we'll see what kind of ground rules we got in terms of uh, discussing things, uh, you know, prior to our, our evaluation. Okay. Yeah. I got it. No, no, no problem. You've been on this before, so you know about it. Let me ask you a couple things, though, um, looking around, surveying the world. Uh, there's a big story, of course, in the journal, Wall Street Journal today. Uh, Biden, Kashida put the focus on China. So uh, Prime Minister uh, Kashida of Japan is in town meeting with President Biden yesterday, um, putting the focus on China. Uh, how does the Chinese story look right now to you? Is this a calmer story? Is this still a toxic, overheated story? You know, any number of things are developing. For example, all these states and maybe the federal government are going to toss the Tic Tac social media app out uh, because it's um, an instrumentality of the Chinese government and uh, is stealing our personal information. How do you read the China story and the related Taiwan story, General Keene? Yeah, uh, very good. And I, I think it is the top issue, frankly. Uh, China has not changed their strategic goals, which is to dominate and control the Indo-Pacific region, and they're working hard at that, and certainly replace the United States as the world's global leader, and they, they want to dominate economically, technologically, uh, geopolitically, and also militarily. And that has not changed. What has changed a little bit is tone. Uh, Post-20th uh, National Party Congress, and I think it's being driven largely by the COVID lockdowns that President Xi had in China, and, and finally, the huge resistance he was getting from his from his own population about all of this, and and also the fact that there's been fair amount of international criticism of China's aggression uh, abroad as well as their repression at home, and and it's reflected in our country. There's growing consensus in our country, Larry, that China is a major threat to the United States. There's bipartisan consensus on that. Majority American people. Uh, uh, believe that. And I think it's uh, testimony that the Republican House is going to form a special select committee mm. on China, something that has never been done before and headed up uh, by a very talented and promising congressman by the name of Mike Gallagher. And I believe that will be a genuine bipartisan effort. Uh, so I, I think what China sees is that the international community is coming together um, and pushing back on them. And I think as a result of that, they're changing their tone to be a little bit more conciliatory in dealing with that community. But I don't think we need, we should be fooled by the rhetoric. We, we got to watch what they do, not just what they say. And, and that is key. And, and their repression at home and aggression abroad will continue. You know, it's interesting. Uh, for one thing, Mike Gallagher is a superstar. He's going to run the Select China Committee. He is a superstar. Um, I've had him on our show a couple of times. 
the other the other thing that's so interesting, General Keene, is that uh, in the last budget omnibus act, which I hated, but one thing I liked in that act, um, they want to get rid of the TikTok social media app. And all these, uh, for government employees, that is, and all these states are doing the same thing. For example, last night on our show, General, uh, we had Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. He's another one who's saying uh, government employees got to get rid of their TikTok app because this is a source of information, government information, could be personal information. It's going right into China, right into China, no matter what they say. Now, that's one of the examples of, I think, how the U.S., is fighting back on this Chinese aggression. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, China's penetration of, of the United States of America, our entire society, our government, uh, our technology development is the most comprehensive penetration of any country uh, since we've been recording such activities. I mean, it far exceeds anything that the Soviet Union was doing with us for 40 years. And I, I think we're challenged to deal with this. Uh, the FBI has new cases that they're opening up every day. I mean, they're a criminal as well as a counterintelligence agency. I've always liked the British system better, Larry, where they had MI5, which is purely mm-hmm. counterintelligence, has nothing to do with criminality. They have no arrest authority whatsoever. They go after spies mm-hmm. and penetration of their society. And the criminal side is is handled by Scotland Yard, and our 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 agency, whose primary responsibility to counter the China threat inside the United States, is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. But the hierarchy of that organization are run by people who have Department of Justice and criminal backgrounds uh, are largely in charge of it, and and that's something I think we can improve on. But this is very comprehensive, very sophisticated. The TikTok move by the Congress and by the states is absolutely the right thing. I mean, it is what it is. It, China is into our everyday life and recording all of this massive data about our people for, for future reference. And that's what they're about. This is this is very sophisticated and very comprehensive. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm glad to see us finally fighting back on this and the right message. Anyway, General Jack Keane. Uh, Good luck on your National Defense Commission, and I look forward to talking to you lots during the new year. Thank you very much, sir. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and on the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. You know, there's some faint signs that we could be entering into a new bull market. Anyway, we'll talk about it. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Lots more to do. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And by the way, right here, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com runs all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And please, during the week, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't make it at 4, just text message your favorite 9-year-old. We'll teach you how to DVR the show. It's not that hard. Anyway, let's do some stock market work, some interesting stuff. Good week for stocks. Dow's up 672. The S&P was up 104. 
Even the NASDAQ up 510 points. So you had a 2% gain in the Dow, 5% in the NAS, almost 3% in the S&P 500. Good stock market action. Anyway, we're going to bring in two dear friends, Nancy Tangler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments, which is a five-star morning star rating, and my pal David Bonson, who's the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group and the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. And he's even got a No Free Lunch video series. Six parts, Defense of Free Markets. I'm for that, Free Markets, yeah. We need more free markets. So, kids, I'm going to read you from this morning, Ed Yardeni Research. He's a smart guy. He's asking this question, young bull market, question mark. So he's saying the low in the S&P 3577 on October 14th. We view that as a successful retest of the June low. And he says, so far, so good. The S&P 500 is up 11.8% since then through Friday's close. It is still down 16.6% from the record high on January 3rd, 2022. It's back slightly above its 200-day moving average. This is the third attempt by the bulls to keep the rally going above its 200-day moving average. We think this one may succeed. So, David Bonson, I begin with you. Are we in a young bull market? Yeah, I wish I knew, Larry, and I guess some think I'm supposed to know, but what I'm supposed to do is admit admit that I don't know and nobody else does either. <laughs> Oh, come on, Dave. <laughs> Here, here's what I think is the best case. The the base case is that I think it is very possible we don't break those prior lows and that we're not about to make new highs. That generally a big bull market followed by a bear market is followed by a pretty long period of a flat, choppy market. Sometimes it can take years to kind of bounce around in a little bit of a range And, of course, I believe those markets are ideal for dividend growth investors, but uh, that's just me talking my book. I really do think that trying to guess the macro right now and then trying to guess how investors are going to respond to the macro is not the best thing for investors to be doing because there are empirical, logical, reasonable arguments for both sides about a recession, a mild one, a harder one. And there is conflicting data. People aren't lying. This isn't politicized. Objectively, labor data is strong and manufacturing services data is weakening. And the yield curve is predicting a recession. And there's other factors that are not cooperating. And so to me, one has to separate their macro guesses from what they do with their portfolio and lean into quality, lean into value, lean into cash flow. And for God's sake, don't go buy crypto and thing right now. <laughs> Whoa. Let me look. Now you got me going here. Bitcoin, 19,494. Bitcoin's come back quite a bit. David. <laughs> well, that, that's right. That's right. It's it, 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 
No, you know, it's, it's up 6%, and if it, if it can just somehow triple from here, it'll be back to where it was. <laughs> Nancy Tangler, I'm going to ask you the same question. Is this a young bull market? It's also interesting. We were talking earlier in the show with uh, Tomas Philipson and John Carney about the recession call, and I actually did it on the TV show last night with, um, with some of our econs. Who do I have? Tyler Goodspeed. And uh, Mike Falkender, this is the most widely heralded recession uh, since the late 16th century. I've never <laughs> seen so many people talking about recession, but it hasn't happened yet. So it keeps getting postponed. Now, Yardeni, who's a smart guy, I really like Yardeni. I've known him for a million years. Um, he thinks we're in a young bull market. What do you think, uh, Nancy Dengler? Well, Larry Kudlow, um, I I think we could be, um, and and here's why. There's a couple of reasons. I I totally agree with David that um, this is the most complex investing environment in my career because there is a lot of conflicting data, as there often is, however, at turning points. And so one of the things that I think you have to look to is history. And if you go back and look at negative years um, that are that where there where the VIX then declines below 20, which is where it is right now. Um, the year is is up on average over 20%. So I do think there's reason to be optimistic. I, I said that on your show on, on Monday. Um, and so we're in buying, we're adding back in risk in our portfolio. We initiated, for example, a position in Tesla in our non-dividend growth portfolios. Uh, and, and we're continuing to add to names um, high quality, as David said, dividend growers, but where the management is, is has experience of navigating through a slowing growth earnings environment. Because if, if the VIX is indicative of where the market's going, and historically it has been, earnings matter a little bit less. And if you go back and look at uh, when the market bottomed during the you know the Volcker, Volcker period, which um, Jay Powell likes to invoke every other. Uh, sentence, you, you'll see that stocks actually bottomed a few months before the, the Fed indicated that they were going to pivot. And in three months, all of the losses of the previous bear market had been recouped. So three months after the pivot. So I think you want to be positioning yourself here. And the risk is that you don't take enough risk. And so that's what we're trying to do for our clients is add in risk at all levels. But I do think we probably get a, mo- a mild recession. The bond market is a lot smarter than I am. And by the way, a lot smarter than the Fed, which is why I think the Fed's going to have to stop sooner than the rhetoric would indicate. So that's how we're positioning ourselves. That's a good answer. Those are good answers. Because, you know, Nancy Bonson just dodged the whole thing. I mean, he just completely <laughs> dodged it, wouldn't go near it, calling on empirical data. I mean, who looks at empirical data, for heaven's sakes? This, we don't live in the age. Well, not, of, we don't live in the I'll age of empirical data. Who doesn't look at data. empirical data? The Fed doesn't look at empirical data. I can tell you that. <laughs> the same thing. I, listen, I think the market was up this week so big uh because Joe Biden went down so much. I mean, you think I'm going to link classified documents with the stock market? I mean, I'm not kidding. There's always politics involved in this thing. All of a sudden, Biden's hand has weakened enormously. All of his uh, self-righteous indignation, you know, and Donald Trump ruining democracy and hoarding classified documents. Whoops. He did the same thing. Now he's in trouble. 
Now we're prolific. Actually, we have a bull market and special counsels is what we have. I've never seen so many special counsels. So I, I kind of like that story. And I think the Republicans are going to be able to cut the budget uh, because of Biden's weakness, which, by the way, is also bullish. In other words, the, the political story is turning much more bullish. Now, David Bonson, surely you can give me an answer on that one. Yes, and I would point out in my defense that I absolutely <laughs> answered your past question and frankly <laughs> answered it quite similar to how Nancy did. But nevertheless, I, uh, if I were you, I'd like Nancy more than me as well. So I get it. But look, um, Larry, the um, danger, you're 100% right. It was a terrible week for Biden. I don't think, I know you're being somewhat funny, but maybe not completely. Like there, we all, there always is a sense in which where is politics uh, playing into what's happening in markets. And the problem is that we can't have it both ways, right? Markets were up big in November, and November was a huge month for Biden. It was a really good month for Biden after the midterms and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think that the market was up every year of the Obama administration, and that seemed in, inconvenient to a lot of us on the right. And yet then the liberals predicted that Trump was going to kill the market and it rallied like crazy throughout his administration. So I tend to downplay where the, you know, correlation and causation stuff is between politics and markets. But your point on budget and on Biden's weakness is very important. But in a given week, I think that the most simple answer, particularly because, by the way, the market was up 750 points the last Friday, and that was before the Biden story broke. And I think it was it's just exactly what Nancy and I both have been talking about this idea that, wait a second, the bond market is looking at inflation coming down. The bond market has rallied, by the way, almost every single day this year so far. I think there's been two days that yields were higher and every other day yields have come down some days significantly. And that's up and down the whole term structure of the bond yield curve. And the reason, in my opinion, is both a good reason and a bad reason. The good reason is that inflation is coming lower and that people expect the Fed is going to kind of capitulate. And all this talk of Powell being Volcker is going to prove to be somewhat, uh, you know, premature. The bad news is I think we're going back into a pre-Trump era of low, slow, no growth. Mm. And, you know, I've called it Japanification. I don't want a decade of 1% real GDP growth. And that's what I'm afraid we're going to go back and do. And when you have a, a yield curve this inverted and the 10-year and 30-year so desperate to get back down to twos and threes and so forth, that, especially when inflation still elevated, that's the bond market telling us your economy doesn't have the power for economic growth right now. And that's the high spending. It's the, it's the high taxes. It's the high regulation. It's the bad energy policy. All of those things. You know, David Bonson, you're just not as much fun as you used to be. <laughs> uh, well, that, that, that's true for a number of reasons. You're just right? not as much fun as you used to be. <laughs> I used to say that to my dates in high school. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Oh, God. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Nancy Tangler of Tangler Investments. We're talking to Dave Bonson of the Bonson Group. I'm Cudlow. We're loads of fun here. We'll be right back with more on the stock market. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are here talking stocks with Nancy Tangler, CEO and 
CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments, and Dave Bonson, who's the founding managing partner of the Bonson Group and the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Uh, Nancy Tangler, the outlook for earnings is what? And tied in with that is this recession call, the most heralded recession since the 16th century. And so far it hasn't happened. So I'm just wondering, profits are the mother's milk of stocks and the lifeblood of the economy. So what's happening on the profits front? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that. But I'm also going to just take the other side of that um, growth trade with David, if you don't mind. Um, I actually am pretty optimistic about future growth. And so I think, well, like we saw the bank earnings and they weren't bad. Um, They were actually pretty good. Next week is a very important week. We get a lot of earnings in the next two weeks, actually. And so it's a little bit, but I think what we're going to see is that there's probably continuing to be margin compression. We heard that from some of the retailers. Um, We know that uh, companies are rationalizing uh, their costs. So we've got, you know, for example, Goldman, which is you know, trying to get in front of their earnings uh, by announcing how much they lost in the in the um, retail bank and then laying people off and reorganizing. So I think you're going to see a lot of rationalization in the first quarter and guidance will matter a whole bunch. But if you if you look at where the you know, whether or not we can grow again, I go back to Dr. Copper, which has rallied hard, mm. as has iron ore on the China reopening. Mm. You've got more companies reshoring or just simply onshoring. Um, and so manufacturing, I think, is going to um, continue to drive growth in middle America. CapEx spending didn't go down um, last year. It actually went up. And the digital revolution, and this is where we're investing in the sweet spot of old economy companies are investing in the digital revolution and then the suppliers of those solutions. Um, that has grown. If you, look, if you go back and look since 1993, industrial robotics has grown at double the rate of the entire economy. And so back to our your original point about the brilliant Ed Yardeni, he wrote a piece this week, and at CES, um, they announced, uh, John Deere announced what they call the exact shot, and it's a farm machine that can de- detect and fertilize individual seeds. Mm. So if you want to talk about improving productivity, I think that's how we get out of this mess, and that's why I'm a little bit more optimistic about growth. We do have, a, you know, a labor participation problem, but ultimately that will be solved by improving productivity. And so, again, that's that's where we're focused. Earnings, of course, matter. Guidance matters a lot. But I think um, I think you have to play the long game in this one because I don't think the labor market's going to improve anytime soon. And I think investors, last thing I'll say, are encouraged um, by by the the fact that there is weakness in the administration, and the reason I say that mm-hmm. is interest costs have gone up forty four percent in three months. So there's going to be a showdown, and I think that's good for investors in stocks. Yeah, man, I think um, I, you know one you don't want to overemphasize politics and the market, but I think the politics um, have taken a more bullish turn. You know, if you're a free enterpriser. I, th- I at think the that, margin. Yeah, yeah, at the margin. That's correct. I, I think the Biden weakness gives and McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy came out of the speaker's battle probably in better shape and the likelihood of a better budget, you know, meaning le- l- less spending, uh, fewer taxes and regulations, that likelihood has improved. And and all that is good for for the economy, good for 
micro growth. But I wanted to, I don't know, David Bonson, you can take a stab at this. That the I'm interested, David, in the Goldman Sachs thing. This retail bank attempt looks like it utterly failed. And I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, sometimes, you know, wholesale banks try to do too much. Maybe they just couldn't get it together. I mean, it looks like it was a disaster. And I guess that's where the budget and personnel cuts are going to come from. Yeah, it's actually something I've studied quite a bit. And obviously, you know, running my own $4 billion firm and being out of, I was the managing director at Goldman's biggest competitor, Morgan Stanley, for many, many years. And I don't understand uh, companies that have incredible core competencies. They're not just good at the things they're good at. They're great. They're the best at investment banking, at institutional trading. And then they decide they want to go open, you know, $5,000 checking accounts for mm-hmm. people. Uh, now, look, the market has a need for $5,000 checking accounts. But that doesn't mean that it's in Goldman Sachs's domain. And so I think what you had post-crisis, I blame Dodd-Frank because it it, it incentivized investment banks to stop doing the fun stuff, private equity and hedge funds and, and investment banking and other things that have more risk capital and to start doing other more boring businesses. But it didn't make them do it well. And, 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 and so ultimately, you have the JPs and cities, really who Dodd-Frank's hurt the most are the smaller banks, the regional banks, that, that regulation was a subsidy to the more entrenched big commercial banks. And I just think the lesson with Goldman is to stick to what you do best, and that's ultimately what they seem to be learning under David Solomon right now. Morgan Stanley uh, d- doesn't have a retail bank, does it? Well, they do in the sense that they got a charter for a commercial bank, as Goldman did, really as a funding mechanism. It allowed them to use deposits in, in terms of their, the way they on capital is measured. But they used it just to beef up credit lines they gave to their retail bank customers, uh, excuse me, to their, to their wealth management customers. However, even Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade during COVID. Oh, that's you know, they, right. all, they, that's They've all right. done things to kind of go downstream into a different type of customer. Mm. And my view is just that you can't bring the culture with you. There's a right. culture that really matters in these companies. Hmm. So last one, we've got 30, 40 seconds. David, bullish or bearish? Uh, bullish long-term because I'm always bullish long-term. <laughs> and uh, agnostic short-term, even if that makes Larry Cuddle make fun of me. That's great. I happen to agree. (laughs) Stocks for the long run and agnosticism in the short run. It's like the only bull market I see is in special councils. Anyway, Nancy Tangler, thank you. David Bonson, thank you. Terrific stuff. Folks, other side of the break, we're going to do some money and politics with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore from Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and his book, Govzilla. Um, I just saw this 12.02 p.m. Saturday. This is off of Newsmax. Lawyers for President Joe Biden found more classified documents at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, than previously known. The White House acknowledged Saturday. White House lawyer Richard Sauber 
said in a statement a total of six pages of classified documents were found during a search of Biden's private library. The White House had said previously only a single page. And we're just getting warmed up here is what I think. When this thing's all over, we're going to find a lot of pages, a lot more pages. This is such a phony story. Um, What interests me, Liz Peake, this is, I think, politically excruciatingly bad for Joe Biden and his Democratic pals. And I think politically it's excruciatingly good for Kevin (laughs) McCarthy and his Republican pals in the House. Uh, The seesaw is now swinging in a much different direction. And I wanted you guys to talk about that because it's going to have fiscal and economic implications as well as political implications, but it's going to be a steady drip, drip. We have a bull market in special counsels, but um, <laughs> we got a, we got a drip, drip, drip of documents here, Liz Peake. What do you make of it? Yeah, I, I think really there are a lot of things that can be said about this, but the most important one to me is that it really begins to kind of crush Joe Biden's reputation as being the honest, trustworthy politician uh, that we can all believe in. I mean, you go back to, I just came across a piece written in 2015 uh, in the Washington Post entitled The Amazing Honesty of Joe Biden. Uh, And there's a line in there by Chris Salosa saying, Joe Biden's unique trait as a politician is and always has been his honesty. I mean, ridiculous because he's not a very honest man. We know that. No one pulls out of a presidential campaign for plagiarizing and lying about your background because you're an honest guy. So I I think what's interesting, Larry, you go back to the Hillary uh, email issue when, you know, James Comey basically uh, said he wasn't going to press charges against Hillary, but her trusting, her trustworthiness or whatever you want to call it, honesty rating at that time was 38%. And even liberal media was coming out and saying, oh my gosh, these are terrible numbers. She never recovered from that. And I think we may be sort of seeing the beginning of such a, a demolition of Joe Biden's facade starting right now. You know, Steve Moore, uh, to translate this into fiscal economic <laughs> stuff, I mean, I think this is a big boost uh, to McCarthy and the House Republicans and the budget cutting and, you know, maybe better energy policy. You know, quite apart from the investigations that, you know, Jim Jordan and uh, Comer are going to mm-hmm. do. I'm just looking at uh, our side of the of the ledger, the economic and fiscal side. This gives them a leg up. This, I mean, Biden's going to be enormously weakened by this. And Schumer and the Democrats... I mean, you know, their talking points, as Liz is suggesting, their talking points are being ripped away from them almost on a daily basis. <laughs> well, I think you're you're right about that. I think McCarthy, you know, as we look at that rebellion that happened last weekend, I think, that if anything, all of these new rules have kind of um, emboldened McCarthy. He's off to, I think, a good start. He's talking about, you know, having a vote on um, eliminating the income tax, and they've dedicated themselves to you know, this six, seven, eight year old um, balanced budget plan, which I think is, you know, fantastic. So um, and look, if Biden is weakened by this scandal, then that only strengthens McCarthy's hand when it comes to because at some point there's going to be a come to Jesus moment. They're going to sit across the table, uh, McCarthy and, and Biden, 
and work this out. And if if uh, if Biden is politically injured, I think it gives McCarthy more uh, chips at the table. I mean, think of this. Just let's jump shift right into this. Janet Yellen, you know, puts out this letter about the debt ceiling. All right. Uh, is going to be over uh, the debt ceiling in, uh, Thursday. Put it on your calendars. We run out of debt. No, Thursday, we don't. Right. I mean, it has no, almost no meaning at all because it's going to go on for six, for months and months and months. They find ways and means to take surplus retirement accounts, and they won't have to sell bonds and so forth and so on. But let me just ask you this. Let me, let's talk about this. So what? So let's say they want a debt ceiling deal, the, the Republicans. So, so maybe for every dollar increase in the debt ceiling, you have $3 of budget cuts, spending cuts, Steve Moore. Start with you, Liz, we'll go to you. That's a good deal. And if, if Wait, uh, say that again, three dollars of spending cuts for one dollar of um, of, de- of, de- of debt increase. Oh, right. Okay, just yeah. For like like sake. Just, yeah, yeah. Just for argument's sake. Just yeah, just for argument's sake. Okay. I think Kevin Hassett was the one who yes. put that. Kevin. Up, yeah. Kevin talked about it on the TV show last night. Right. right. Uh, Kevin, uh, like me, we used to be very respectable establishment type people. <laughs> uh, I'll let Liz speak for herself. We used to always worry about the debt and our credit. Now, I don't anymore because I think it's all all baloney. And anyway, I think you pointed this out. There's always revenues to pay the interest on of the course, 10-year bond, for heaven's sakes. But the point is, so we shut the government down. So we exceed. We don't, we, we don't raise the debt ceiling. I don't care. And I don't see how Biden, you know, he can yelp as much as he wants, but his whole position now is gone. His politics is gone. He has no political power. His, uh, his, you know, his, he had a quasi victory in the midterms. That's gone. This replaces everything. So the Republicans should be on the march, Steve Moore. They should be as aggressive as possible when it comes to this budget stuff. And uh, and who cares about the debt ceiling? Well, uh, first of all, the the uh, Democrats are are trying to make the argument that they're going to go Republicans again, they're going to cause a default. And by the way, that's all your friends on Wall Street who yeah. keep saying that, yeah. Larry. And then your old friends, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> no, I but, used uh, to be in that yeah. camp, but I don't I'm care anymore. Anyway. I don't care. Well, I used to be a respectable, yeah. responsible person. <laughs> I no longer am. <laughs> um, so uh, here's what I like about this. I think Republicans should make it loud and clear, and McCarthy's been pretty clear about this in his, in his uh, speeches, <laughs> that there's not going to be a death ceiling race until these various conditions are met. And, and, and they're all reasonable ones. A path to a balanced budget, a three-fifths vote to um, mm-hmm. raise taxes. Maybe, you know, as you said, some formula, like $3 of uh, spending cuts for every dollar of, of uh, increase in the, in the debt. Um, and announce that right now and basically say, you know, we're not backing down from this. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is at the very essence of why Republicans are in Congress. So let's have that moment. And then if if, if Biden doesn't uh, agree to a deal, then why is Republicans are responsible for it? Right. 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 Let's let's speak. I totally agree with this. And, and by the way, I, I think. It's going to, you know, you are going to see endless stories about families that travel to the National Mall. They're not allowed to get into a museum. And, oh, my gosh, this means that veterans aren't going to get their paychecks and all this kind of stuff. It'll be brinksmanship and horror story after horror story in the press about how terrible this is. But here's an interesting phenomenon. Rich Lowry today 
I, uh, in the post of the journal, had a piece about, well, you know, maybe Chip Roy actually had a point yeah. in terms of what he was pushing for. All these sort of establishment Republicans were so negative on this whole battle mm-hmm. about Kevin McCarthy. I was out there early on saying, well, wait a minute, these are reasonable demands. Right. I think as people begin to look <laughs> at this confrontation, because guess what? The American people are worried about our debt situation. Our politicians may not be, but I think voters really are. Mm -hmm. They're smarter than the people in Congress who basically just pass on. And by the way, that's why the Republican brand is so tarnished, because they have been party to this $31 trillion in debt accumulated, uh, you know, in a pretty short period of time, really. So I I think this is a moment, to, uh, to your point, Larry, I think it's a moment Republicans stand firm. They make reasonable requests. We're not saying tomorrow we have to have a balanced budget. We're saying over 10 years, it is a reasonable idea to get to a balanced budget. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think I would take over 12 years. Whatever. I would say I would say we have to have a plan. That's right. right. I would take 15 years. I mean, the way we're going, the way we're going, if you look at these long term CBO forecasts, uh, you know, they're all based on very low growth, but low growth is what we have unless we have a lot right. of changes in spending and taxing and regulating policies. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's exactly right. But the interesting thing is how quickly this has changed. Biden had a what I would yeah. call midterm afterglow. You know, like, oh, look how well we did. Now, they lost the House, but it was closer, and they kept the Senate. That's gone, Liz. Yeah, it's gone. I agree. It just it went up in smoke. No, it went up in a skiff. That's what yeah. this did. It went up in his basement, in his garage, where he had junior White House lawyers taking the place of cleaning ladies. Yeah, and they, and, and they <laughs> and, found and classified way, it, document. You see that picture with the Corvette, and behind this, all this paper stuffed away in a corner of his garage? You, yeah. you know what that is? That's A safe, a safe house? <laughs> that's, you, that's Ukrainian policy. Yeah. That's Chinese. That's the Chinese Communist Party policy in a classified document. Hey, excuse me, there was a lock on that garage door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, really? I think this this story has opened the door to a reasonable interest, uh, public interest in why the Chinese gave so much, tens of millions of dollars to the think tank that Joe Biden was involved in. Why, who has been visiting uh, the Wilmington White House, where the president has spent almost a third of his time since becoming president? I mean, I really do think this opens the door to a lot of inquiries, which seem very reasonable to me. And I think the press, you know, cannot really ignore this. All right. Let's take a quick break. We've got Liz Peake and Steve Moore. By the way, I want to give it a promo. Steve Moore's Moore's Money on many of these very same stations will uh, start right after this show ends. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with Money in Politics. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking to Liz Peake. Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash, Unleash Prosperity, and Steve's show, More Money, will follow this show, at least here in the New York uh, WABC area. 
Um, Steve Moore, I know you're a gourmet cook, and I just, <laughs> I just wondered whether you cooked on a gas-burning stove or not. Well, this has really turned into quite a story, hasn't it? And uh, it's just, it, it's so emblematic of a left that wants to just <laughs> take away all of your home appliances, everything <laughs> from the, you know, the, the, remember, do you guys remember the, the, when they had the, the uh, water requirements for the toilets and yeah. so you oh, yeah. save all this water and you had to like flush the toilet like three yes. times before it flushed. Somehow that was, you know, and they're doing this, by the way, that, uh, with uh, everything from light bulbs to, you know, to your washer and dryer, or your dishwasher. Uh, and my wife is always complaining that because of these water rolls, you can't get your your stuff that clean. So now they come along and they say they're going to take away the gas stove. Now, this is a really interesting story because it was a trial balloon that came out by the Consumer Product Safety Commission, I think, on a Tuesday. And there was such a hullabaloo, uh, by the way, uh, uh, among women, because <laughs> in the in the Moore household, Anna's the one who does the cooking. And, you know, there's a the gas stove. Food tastes better on a gas stove. Yeah. And so anyway, people are so angry about this. And now you've got the Biden people sprinting away from this. But there are such rules in like 18 major cities now. They're trying to get rid of gas stoves all across this country. Yeah, and we got Governor Hochul naturally. Right. Wants to yeah. in- New York City already has a ban. I don't know if anybody observes it. She wants it for the entire state. This is a nanny state special. This is what socialists do, yep. big government yep. socialists. Now, Liz yep. Peek, I, I always thought of, kind of thought of you as a DoorDash kind of gal. But maybe <laughs> maybe you are a gourmet cook on the on the gas stove. You gotta let let our listeners in on this. I, I refuse to answer on the grounds that it could <laughs> incriminate me. Um, I am really good at reheating, though, and yes. reheating is a lot better on a gas stove than an electric range. Uh, look, I, I think, you know, uh, Steve said it right. This is an intrusion, and uh, I wrote a piece about how in the um, lead-up to Brexit, one of the things that tipped polling right. over was the uh, fact that the EU bureaucrats in Brussels decided right. to ban electric tea kettles. Well, you know what? Oh. It was the final indignity. Already 80% of regulations were coming from Brussels that govern English right. lives. They just said, enough, we're not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think our government needs to pay heed to that because, you know, it's okay, I can't use the 100-watt light bulbs I like anymore. And to Steve's point, you have these ridiculous appliances that just don't work. But just get out of my face, get out of my bedroom, get out of my kitchen, leave me alone. I like gas stoves. And by the way, the studies linking, well, look, this is Richard Trumka, who has made his name by uh, combating cigarette smoke, secondhand smoke, things like that. You know, there's really a question about how deep he is into the trial trial lawyers' Uh, kind of making money off of this stuff. I have no idea. That's something someone proposed to me. I think, I think his motives are questionable and the research tying these gas stoves to childhood asthma is preposterous. You have to look at it kind of with a jaundiced eye because it's not good. They cited one study they cited, the anti gas stove people cited was from Stanford University. Uh, they had 53 case studies in homes. All 53 homes are in California. (laughs) 
So, <clears throat> which the, is dangerous to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> so the fruits and nuts, that's what, that's what they were using to justify this. But there is an issue here, um, Steve Moore, because the attack on gas stoves is a thinly veiled attack on of natural course. gas. Right. You know, right. period, full stop. Right. And so I'm yeah. waiting for the Republican House. Now, they've got to come in, H.R. 1, H.R. 2, whatever it is. They've got to put the heat on uh, opening up the oil and gas fossil fuel spigots. They haven't done it yet, Steve. I, 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 they got a lot to do. I know that Kathy McMorris Rogers is going to run the Energy Committee, but they've got to have a bill permitting and allowing pipelines and refineries and, you know, LNG terminals and all that, fracking, Steve. This is very yeah, important. They, they've <laughs> got to hit it hard. Yeah, so first of all, you're exactly right. This this uh, this war against the gas stove is really because the left doesn't want people to use gas at all. So in many cities now, they're, the new homes, I think this is true of New York, that they're not even allowing these new you know apartment complexes even to be hooked up to natural gas. So it's, how stupid is that? Mm-hmm. I mean, natural gas is a clean burning fuel. It's the reason the United States has reduced our pollution levels more than all the other you know countries because we've we've really converted towards natural gas. So I think there's a big backlash against this, and I'm, and of course I agree with you. You know, drill baby drill has got yeah. to be one of our economic growth. Incidentally, the you know those the, you were talking about the deficit. You know, if we continue with one point, they're projecting like. 1.3, 1.4% growth for the next 10 years. we got to aspire to hire them, Larry. Yes. Yes. We should grow at three to four. No, that's right. That's but, here, but here's the problem, Steve. If you keep yeah. giving the government bigger and bigger <laughs> share of right. GDP, right. we're of not going to grow faster than that right. because that is basically right. unproductive spending. That's something that, you know, no, really people don't, it's sort of a, I guess, in the weeds kind of argument, but it's true. And the productivity of our nation is going to suffer as is our growth. That's what the emphasis on all these balanced budget plans should be growth and prosperity. Yep, growth, yep, growth yep, and right. prosperity. Less spending is pro-growth. Uh, yep. Less spending means lower taxes. Less spending means fewer regulations. In other words, they've got to you know spin this, message this properly so people understand where they're going. I mean, I do think there's a concern in the country about debt. I get that this number thirty-one trillion, uh, which is actually twenty-four trillion of publicly marketable debt. But I think um, prosperity, real wages, jobs—that's a better way to sell it, Steve Moore. You know, I think the GOP's got to do that. I agree. I agree. Growth. People want growth. Yeah, growth. We got, is- we got it under Trump, right? We got up to three percent growth under Trump. We probably would add four percent if it hadn't been for COVID. So you got to have the growth, and you got to have the budget cuts. By the way, who, um, speaking of Trump, um, he's the big winner of this uh, classified yeah. document. Yeah, for he? sure. <laughs> right? He finally wins one. He's had a rough yeah. year, a uh, rough, you know, actually you could say a rough two years. This one's kind of vindication. I agree. Is he back, yeah. at, is he back in play, Steve? Yeah. Well, look, he could be. I always, you know, a lot of people have turned, you know, become never Trumpers, but you know, one of the things I've learned and you've learned from being around him is that he, this guy always defies the odds. Remember, they said he couldn't possibly win in 2016. So we'll we'll see. But there is some talk, Larry. Maybe you have the inside scoop that maybe he won't run for president. I don't have any scoops, inside or otherwise. Right. I have no <laughs> scoops. But, but I will say this, um, being fair about this whole story. I, I lo- Look, I love Trump. There's no secret. But, 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 but. 
For some reason, I had in my, you know, we moved apartments and we're going through all kinds of papers and documents. And I was reading last night uh, Governor DeSantis's uh, second inauguration speech. Uh-huh. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, touched on all areas, including foreign policy. Uh, t- you know, talked about freedom, spending, taxing, regulating, quoting scriptures. I mean, it was, I just want to say we're going to have to close down. Anyway, everybody, Steve Moore's Moore's Money is on right after this. Liz Peak, thank you ever so much. All right, we'll talk. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here next weekend. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. 